Hello again, Geeky On listeners. This is Eric Houston. I am coming at you with another podcast. Uh, this week, I sat down and talked to Sonia Anwar. Uh, Sonia is a local illustrator uh, in, in Toronto, and uh, she is the... I guess, writer and illustrator for uh, her own book, 1001. Uh, Really excited to share this podcast with you guys because we have been trying to get this together for quite a while. Uh, It's been like almost two months, I think, that we've been going back and forth. She was one of the earliest people I contacted, uh, but we finally got together. We finally made it happen, and uh, it was a really great conversation. Um, She is just a super cool person, and uh, we had a lot of fun talking about just all kinds of stuff from Kong books to video games and uh yeah so we have uh the podcast for you coming up and uh i hope you enjoy it short intro this time eat cookies throughout at some point or another i can only you know withhold from temptation so long oh yeah no i have no willpower to speak of so um, yeah <laughs> if those cookies are going to stay there they will be eaten in yeah. time it's just a matter um, of course it really is yeah <laughs> but um i guess introductions should, should come first and you are sonia anwar yep my name is sonia anwar and i'm the okay crap i screwed that up what well it's all right whatever it doesn't need to be like a technical thing it's not a like it's not a you know proper sit down interview thing as you see i've got no notepad nothing prepared uh which is totally professional of me no you seem really really professional (laughs) with your suit and tie exactly which is a t-shirt and jeans the monocle i thought also really helped yes i mean that's to make myself feel approachable i think i think people see a man with a monocle and think there's a man i can open up to no i i definitely i mean your whole kind of like monopoly vibe really makes me (laughs) think that i can talk i didn't even wax my mustache today then i would have been really that's, see that's the only place you're lacking yeah, you know, know had you come in with the waxed mustache i would really think that maybe i was in trouble with the government or there something. you go um, <laughs> but uh yeah so my name is sonia anwar yes and i am an illustrator and comic creator based out of toronto that's right but not you haven't always been in toronto right you were in montreal before right yeah i was in montreal for three years um where i worked at a studio called studio 3625. Oh God, I might be getting the number wrong. But um, <laughs> but I worked there with uh, my colleagues, which were uh, Eric Tadou, um, Yannick Paquette, uh, Michelle Lacombe, Kate Bradley, um, Jan Mogren, even though I never saw him around. Yeah. He was mostly a weekend guy. Um, so I worked there for a couple of years. And prior to that, I was a born and raised Winnipegger. So a really long time in Winnipeg. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Man, it's funny, like the odd people you find out that are from Winnipeg, which is not a huge place and a good ways away. Yeah. Because I know that um, Hope, uh, you know, she, like, who did, just did the Nelvana yeah. uh, series, she's from Winnipeg, and Fred Kennedy. Hope is from Winnipeg? I believe so. Wow. Or at least Manitoba, because I know that's where her family is, but I am. 90% sure it's Winnipeg. Yeah, she yeah, actually just went home recently. So. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so. Because really, we all do know each other down there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, that makes sense because the first time I met Hope, I uh, I thought I recognized her. Oh, really? But I couldn't place it. That's so funny. Now that I know she's from Winnipeg, you I feel like I could, I could probably place her. Um, but uh, yeah, no, growing up in Winnipeg is, is amazing. It's kind of a... It's it's a place that doesn't have, or at least when I was growing up, didn't have a lot of stuff to do. So you know, for myself, like comics was such a outlet to be able to just like explore this like totally new world and get into illustration and whatnot. And I feel like I developed as an artist ninety percent out of boredom in Winnipeg. Really? Well, yeah. that's funny because yeah, like of the people I know from there, everyone's into comics. So I guess uh, there wasn't too much else to do. So there isn't. It's a great city, but there isn't a terrible lot to do. Um, but uh, I don't know. other than just freeze in the cold and look at empty planes. <laughs> As far as the eye can see. Pretty much, yeah. Um, (laughs) When my husband was visiting the first time uh, in Winnipeg, uh, he was actually kind of amazed, like, that you could see the horizon everywhere. Yeah. Um, Like, literally, you could just, you have, like, 100% visibility to the horizon, um, which is, I guess, not something you get in the GTA. No, or most places. (laughs) It's just an incredibly flat area for 
most places in the world, I'd say. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. But uh, but I loved it. It was a great place to grow up, and it kind of gave me a chance to... I, I feel like it actually genuinely gave me the chance to develop kind of my own style and my own aesthetic without too much external interference, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm curious if you could elaborate on that a bit, just because, um, you know, I think that... Everyone sort of develops the like a style from usually from the artists that they look up to and everything and, and admire and I mean you can see it in a lot of the comic generation now where you know the the comics uh, you know sort of gurus of the '90s and everything definitely influenced people to come up like you know people like McFarlane and Liefeld and you know like uh, uh, Jim Lee even like I mean those guys definitely shaped a whole generation of comics uh, like uh, artists so. Where, like, I mean, where do you figure you sort of created your, your or your style really came from then? Well, it was, it was kind of cool because, like, I, um, I, I was drawing from, like, a really, really, really young age. I had no siblings or anything, so there wasn't a lot of other stuff to do at home. Um, and I remember originally I was just sort of drawing still life or anything I could kind of do. I, I remember my mom used to have this, um, keychain that had, like, a high heel shoe on it, and I would just borrow it from her in the evenings and I would just draw this shoe at like a really young age because I was just like was so desperate for something some outlet you know what I mean yeah and then right behind my house this old diner closed down and became a comic shop oh, cool. and I think I was like seven or eight and I had never seen anything other than an Archie comic which you know was was fun to read but it didn't have any it didn't resonate with me artistically I mean not and nothing against that but no, um, no. yeah so I I remember you know just running errands for my mom and walking into this place that used to be a diner and you know it was just like it was honestly like Willy Wonka <laughs> like yeah. you walk in and and everywhere you look is just this incredible aesthetic like kind of like cartoons but more advanced and more interesting and more colorful um, and I was just like blown away I, I spent years in that store um, just going back and forth and I think that was definitely like a turning point for my whole life even though I was so young because now I suddenly had like an outlet I had a, a direction to go on things to draw um, and I was like there's people out here who are actually doing this for a living there must be otherwise how could this yeah, be how's it get me in the first place? yeah um, so yeah, I was actually one of the first uh, first things I was exposed to in terms of like comic esque art style was actually a lot of uh, Michael Turner's stuff because um, yeah. he was just getting popular then. Um, Todd McFarlane's stuff was out too. Yeah. Um, so I didn't I didn't I didn't lean too much towards Marvel and DC at the time. Yeah. Um, it was a little hard to get into, especially me being like a young girl. Um, yeah. What well, like what what was it about those that. Found, that you found kind of daunting in terms of, or just not appealing as, you know, an early comic reader? You know, I I think I actually remember pretty distinctly, one of my favorite early comics was uh, Witchblade. Um, yeah? Which I, I'm still a big fan of to this day. And I remember the moment I picked up Witchblade over everything else in the store. The reason was because there was this woman on the cover who actually, I know it sounds like the funniest thing, but she was wearing kind of normal clothing. Um, so... So I take it this wasn't a cover where she had her crazy witchblade, like... Well, it was... Yeah, like, she, <laughs> bikini. <laughs> she did. No, actually, there were so many of those, yeah. too, right? But this particular cover, no, she was in her, like, NYPD kind yeah. of gear. Um, or I think she was in, like, her detective getup, kind yeah. of. And she had a little bit of the witchblade kind of going just on the arm. Sure. And, uh... I, it felt a lot more accessible than everything else because everything else, like, I, I kind of knew who Wonder Woman was and I knew who the X-Men were because the cartoon was out at the time. Sure, yeah. Um, but in general, I was like, I don't know anything about these people or their stories. Yeah. But this is a person who seemed pretty normal-ish. And I ended up getting into Witchblade and all just kind of snowballed after that into X-Men oh, cool. and different things. And, yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, I guess that's a good point because uh, it's, it's interesting to think because I think when most people think of comic books and they think of superheroes that are so larger than life mm -hmm. it's funny to think that sometimes it takes an image that has that sense of like verisimilitude to reality that can ground it enough to make someone that's never been into comic books actually want to pick it up and read it yeah absolutely yeah. I, and i think that's what it was like and it's not like the the story turned you off even though it was clearly not you know a very realistic story it's it's crazy you know like magic and you know police you know, like it's, <laughs> police business well yeah like it's like almost like a <clears throat> supernatural procedural book you know like where she's like a, a cop that uses her her like that thing to yeah it's 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 got a bit of an x filey quality combined yeah. with yeah obviously this this macabre and our or this uh, occult witchblade thing yeah. 
But um, on top of it, I think the other side of the spectrum was I tried to reach, I tried to go towards X Men because I recognized the characters. I'm like, hey, I know this is Rogue and this is Storm and yeah. these are all these cool characters. The brand recognition. Yeah, there was yeah. there was that, and and you know it's funny that just happened again like a couple of years ago with uh, Teen Titans. And then they had such a viewership, and kids were then going into stores and, and trying to oh, yeah. recognize these characters. So that it does happen. Yeah. A show does create new fans. Yeah. So I, I remember reaching out for X-Men, and I had more trouble with that because there would be the little boxes at the bottom of every page saying, read issue 233, oh, or go back to this. Yeah. That um, was something I hated as a kid, too. And yeah. I think it was rampant in that era. Yeah. It, it was the era of, like cross-referencing story arcs and stuff like that. I mean, not that it doesn't exist today, but I think a lot of comics now, they kind of try and keep a story contained to maybe five issues or something like that, mm-hmm. where, you know, you, you kind of see a jumping on point. Uh, but I used to hate that, too. Or you, mm-hmm. you'd read in the actual comic itself, like, some reference to something, and you're like, what? And it's like, for more, like, you'd see, like, a little editor drawn in there. It's like, if you want to know more about this, read this issue. And it's just like, yeah. well... And I, I feel don't have like, that. and I feel like it's gotten worse actually as well. Really? Be- well, I, a little bit because I remember I was really into the the House of M storyline for a while. Yeah. And it got so like it, like it, it was just blowing up everywhere in the Marvel kind of universe. Yeah, everything and, got impacted. Yeah, and 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 I'm just like I just can't. I'm like, I'm a completionist, right? So I yeah. I was like I can't read this story to its completion. Um, which was a little frustrating for me. Yeah, I think the whole um, you know event comics as mm-hmm. you know they are mm-hmm. is is problematic. I think for for people. On the one hand, you do have a story that you can come in at the start of that and and basically know exactly what's going on versus you know picking up issue. 300 something and having to figure out what's going on and all this backstory but at the same time you're right I mean there's all these cross issue story arcs that are going on on like different characters and stuff like that that you don't care about like the last one that really irked me was with Batman they did the um the what's it called the the death of the family the the one with the yeah. return of the Joker mm-hmm. where they just want you to read so many peripheral books to just sort of flesh out the story and I just I couldn't become invested in that you know like I just didn't want to you know have to do all of that and I and I don't think I even really understand it from a marketing standpoint because there's so much content out there now yeah. that people literally will turn to material that is more digestible. Um, and uh, I, th- I think that's why I actually did really like the Ultimates, yeah. um, all of the Ultimate-esque series, mm-hmm. um, Ultimate X-Men and what have you. Like It was so refreshing to be able to just read something and then read the next issue and the next issue. Yeah, and, and just be in there from the beginning. And it's funny, I actually, um, when they did the whole death of Peter Parker in the Ultimate universe and started up with the ultimate all-new Spider-Man with, like, Miles Morales and everything, I actually jumped on that because I was like, well, here's... Like, Ultimate Spider-Man had got pretty long in the tooth. Like, there was stories... There were stories taking place that I had no concept of because I kind of fell off on it. And uh, so I saw this, and I was like, well, here's an opportunity to hear a whole new tale of Spider-Man. Like, I don't have to deal with the whole uh, Peter Parker origin story. Like, that is that is so old now that it's practically become modern myth. Yeah. You know, it's like... It's a modern, like, hero archetype. Yeah. And so it was interesting to read a new story that... It had the same. It hit the same notes, but in a different way, uh, which I thought was really refreshing. Yeah. So, like, yeah, it's it's nice to have a new jumping on point. You know, and and on top of it, just to speak a little bit to like um, the reboot with that. Um, I remember when Miles Morales came out. Oh my God! Like it, he just caught so much flack for oh, being half black, black, half Latino. Yeah. Like, like apparently, like that. Although that was just too much for everyone. Which, and I feel like isn't. I just feel like looking at it, looking at how successful it was. Do people feel embarrassed about the way they reacted to like this o- apparently overly too diverse character? Well, I think anytime there's a like sort of a diversity choice either in something like that or, or casting for a movie uh, there's always this insane outcry I, I honestly believe the people that do speak out feel no shame about it but I also think they're a, they're a vocal minority yeah I really like I like to believe that that's just not the case because I, I personally don't know that many people that got upset when uh, was it 
uh, Michael J. Richards or whatever, they just got cast as Johnny Storm yeah. in the Fantastic Four, or care of that Miles Morales was like half black, half Hispanic, or when people were making rumors about Donald Glover being Spider-Man, mm-hmm. you know, like, most people I know don't care, but there's definitely people that do, and they're just really loud about it, Yeah, you know? Um, and it, it is insane, and especially, like, anyone who picks up and reads that book, like, I would I would put money on them totally understanding and like see, reading that story and saying that works perfectly, you know. Uh, especially like from a like a contemporary standpoint. Like I mean, <clears throat> when you think about telling the Peter Parker sto- like sort of story in this day and age, and like that that like white kid growing up in whatever it is, is it Queens or whatever? I like, think he was supposed to be Queens. Yeah, and, and like, and growing up in Queens and being, like, poor, and I just feel like it wouldn't even, like, it, it would just seem, like, out of date, because it doesn't take into a fa- like into account the actual multicultural, like, you know, world that New York is in this day and age, right? Like, yeah. or, like, North America. You know, like, that's just... You know that's a reality that there's. It's a, it's a natural update. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't. It, I like anyone who says it feels forced. I think is just more thinking about on like just reading these stories as as if it's like you can't touch the you can't alter the material. But if you're gonna make something more contemporary, you have to take in the you have to take into account the contemporary world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, people, especially like if reacting to like. Miss Marvel, um, when that all came out, I think people have come to really get excited about the series because we know it's been like selling out everywhere. Yeah. Um, people are excited about the series because it's a different perspective and and it's a it's a different take. Um, not to say that there isn't like a, like there's not there's nothing wrong with like rehashing old perspectives and old stories, but it's nice to have that additional view. Yeah, or give it something to contextualize it, right? Yeah. Like, and that's the thing, and I think. That's absolutely true, and it's it's good. It's a good point that you point out that it does sell out and it's doing really well because it shows that the people that like you know the people that aren't crying out and that aren't making a scene, they're voting with their dollars. Yeah, like they're going out and they're supporting these projects by buying them. You know, like I, I can guarantee you, those people that are going out and ranting and raving, they're they're not you know like half the time they're going to go out and buy it anyway. Yeah. You know, that's the funny thing. So it's like, they're not really making a difference. They're just, you know, making a lot of noise. And I think it's just, it's kind of sad because it just doesn't, it reflects poorly on like Us as the a audience, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. As a community, for sure. Because it just makes, it makes it seem as though there's really all these people like that, but it's, that's not the norm. Yeah, that's, that's so true as well because, um, uh, <laughs> going too far on this topic but um, I, I think that's so true as well because recently like um, my husband introduced me to sort of like the video gaming world when we got married and now I'm a huge 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 fan and I yeah. buy just as many games as he does and um, so recently we were just chatting about the new Assassin's Creed Unity that, uh, that that's is, right that was big news yeah um, it, so we just watched we actually sat down and watched the trailer together yeah. neither of us wanted to watch it you know without the other right so we watched it and um, I've always been a fan of the franchise but I was a little disappointed to see that they had chosen again like for you know pardon me for saying like you know white male protagonists yeah. um and I was like, okay, well, I mean, like, you know, France at the time actually was a little more multicultural than people think it is. Yeah. Um, so that was a little bit surprising that they wouldn't even try to sneak a, a little bit of that in. So when I looked around online, like the very next day, there was a lot of opinion pieces that came out echoing what I mentioned. And the commentary was like quite shocking. Like people, yeah. it, it wasn't even a matter of like a 50-50 debate. It was very much a lot of just like, you know, we need to stop catering to feminists, we need to stop catering to the diversity, you know, kind of thing. And I'm just like, you know, for all that the comic industry may not be perfect, um, there's a lot more open-mindedness and and open hearts in comics then you will see in some of our neighboring uh, like industries. Geek, yeah, in sort of geek culture domains, like, yeah, exactly, video games. I think video games is an interesting one because it's actually such a broad audience. Like, mm-hmm. there are people that pay, play video games that are just totally disparate at this point. It's become mm-hmm. sort of a cultural norm, like watching movies or television, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. I mean, the whole the whole controversy around uh, Assassin's Creed Unity, where they're... they're 
they try to explain away mm-hmm. their choice to not oh, have a female character. And what a terrible explanation. It's oh my gosh. garbage. Like, saying, like, they can't animate it or, like, it would take too much time. Yeah, and apparently, like, a, like AC employs 8,000 animators. And I'm just kind of like, really? Well, I mean, really? if you, you've been to Montreal, I'm sure you know where the Ubisoft building is. Yeah. That whole building is going to be pretty much dedicated to Assassin's Creed. Oh, absolutely. You know? And that's a huge building filled with, you know, top-level talent in the industry. You can't tell me that they can't design a female protagonist character and animate that character. Like, and, that's not going to be... And it's so confusing as well, because, like, I play the uh, multiplayer portions of these games with a lot of enthusiasm. Yeah. And the multiplayer portions... Oh, they're they're fantastic. Oh, it's such a cool um, style of multiplayer with the whole sort of, uh, it's like a hide-and-seek game, right? Where you, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I love it. Like, so especially good. when I think Brotherhood came out, I just, like, I lost, I, oh, I got, I killed Dave. I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. I like any type of multiplayer experience that's sort of asymmetrical like that, where it's not just two teams head-to-head, mm-hmm. you know, shoot each other in the face kind of thing, yeah. is always really interesting and that game did it really well where you know you've got those sort of environments where you can try and blend in and play cat and mouse yeah it's and, cool. and i think also what was so refreshing about it is like i've ne- i haven't not a lot of multiplayer resonates with me but what i liked about that game is like it was like person to person strategy yeah like you can't just it's not a sniper situation you can occasionally use a gun but everybody thinks it's cheap let's be honest <laughs> um it's ultimately like if you're going to take someone out you have to strategize how you're going to take them out yeah um so i mean i so i love the multiplayer but um i know 50 percent of the multiplayer cast is female so i'm just like you've animated the female yeah. characters in the multiplayer they have all of these these like what are called in-game assets right they have mm. all these assets built designed all all there and yet you're gonna they're gonna try and say that they can't do it for the main story of the game it doesn't add up no it doesn't and that's why i think there was another like a former um developer from the the company who had gone on to a different project like a different company spoke out and said that's blatantly false yeah so and that's where it gets crazy to me that people get up in arms and say that you know that somehow that this is some uh, feminist agenda to, to want to like get a, a female character in this when it's just it's that's nonsense it's not like they're asking you know men to be completely emasculated and not have any representation they're just asking that there be some for the other audiences that are actually playing this game yeah and, and just to speak to that as well like uh, my husband's playing GTA 5 right now and I'll be honest you know when I when I when I observe what's on the screen I'm like wow that yeah. is uh, that is that is really something and then I'm a little additionally horrified by all the people who buy it for their kids like my god yeah um, but um, but aside from all of that uh, to tell you the truth I do get what they're doing with GTA 5 um, they made the argument for them that you know this is a very very masculine game and in truth I do kind of understand it's kind of like um, I, I started watching Mad Men recently as well, which is actually right. written almost completely by women. Sunny Jealous um, is like one of the lead writers, Canadian yeah. as well. Oh, I didn't know that. And she's a phenomenal writer, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, some people argue that's why the characters feel like they have so much depth. But with uh, with stuff like Mad Men and 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 with uh, GTA V, they're trying to explore like what does it mean to be a guy in like different forms. And I don't... I mean, while I would still love to see a little bit of better representation of women, I do get what they're doing there. And I don't necessarily have a problem with it beyond it being sold to minors, which is a really bad idea. Um, But games like AC that have a huge female following. A huge female following. And there's significant female characters, non-playable characters, that that have been existed through the series. No way has it ever been... Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I just think it's it's kind of ridiculous, and the outcry of people that the the <clears throat> I don't even want to call it the out, outcry, but it's the sort of apologist sort of reaction of people that try to explain away why it's not a big deal. That upsets me. Yeah. I mean, it kind of harkens back to a lot of the reaction to um, Anita Sarkeesian's like feminist oh frequency stuff gosh, and yeah. her stuff for tropes versus video games. Where, I mean, I personally, I'm a big fan of her work. I think that the stuff that she does, while occasionally off the mark, is for the most part very spot on and very... She's asking important questions. Exactly, and she's making very valid observations. (laughs) I think that, I think my only criticism of her work is that sometimes I think she sort of ignores truths that may be inconvenient for her narrative. Right. But 
you can argue that the people like a lot of documentaries, a lot of people that have that sort of it, it happens. It's mm-hmm. it's not uncommon. Um, but the bottom line is that she's doing important. She's asking important questions and she's really opening up a dialogue that needs to be had. But the the negative reaction is insane. Yes. You know. Um, but. I mean, I, I think from your perspective, as someone playing video games, I mean, it's it's got to be important to see that at least it's happening, that, that people are talking about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, on, there's times where, I mean, you look at what's going on out there, and you look at the, the comments, which you should never look at, no. but um, there's times you look at it and you're like, oh, God, you know, this is the, this is the lowest rung of humanity. But in truth, like... You have to get over that initial negative sentiment and say, this is where conversation starts. Yep. Um, you know, there's probably a time, you know, with the civil rights movement getting started that people said, you know, why are these guys getting so uppity? Um, <laughs> yeah. Frankly, that uppity comment, I'm sure, has been, you know, spread out throughout time. Um, yeah. You know, why are these women getting so uppity suddenly with their desire to have suffrage? Yeah, why um, do they want to vote? What's the big deal? Exactly. What's the problem with the system? <laughs> so there's always going to be, yeah, the, the protectors of the system overreacting. But, like, every step of the way, it's, you know, it, it's a hard journey to take, but it happens. Um, so, yeah, I guess you just have to kind of, like, hold on and hope that there's... And, 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 and there is good material out there. There's st- things are still changing. Yeah, and um, that's I think that's sort of the, the glimmer of hope or the silver lining is that, you know, for every game that gets made that it's, you know, you, you're disappointed with a lack of diversity and, the, you know, like, the lack of rep- representation you get at least something that does have it and, you know, it makes you believe that it's the tides are shifting, right? Yeah. But um, I, I'm curious as to how, like, I mean, you were saying the comics aren't as bad as a, as a sort of community. Um, have you ever encountered that in terms of your work as, as a, a woman in comics? Um, you know, have you ever been met with some particularly negative sentiment? You know, it's funny. As a, as a woman in comics, not as much. No. Um, I've mostly encountered, like, a lot of positivity. As a Muslim woman in comics, uh, I usually, I find the statistic to be one, one unfavorable comment per convention. Or one really? Comment. Yeah, usually. In person? In, I mean, in person. Wow. And, 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 and to be fair... It's a lot of people who don't really hear what they're saying. Um, I think they don't maybe encounter a lot of persons of maybe different cultures or ethnicities in their lives. And so they say something that's like wildly offensive, Uh, but, and are surprised when I have a somewhat shocked look on my face. It's sort of like the, it's like the grandma complex where like, you know, someone's grandma says that like racist comment or something. It's like, no, you can't say that. Exactly. Exactly. And so like, I'm always caught between just being you know, outright, you know, offended. Yeah. And then other times being like, okay, you know, this is, you know, like, see, I, I remember this was so, I, I have to, I have to, first I'm going to definitely say that that's like 1%. 99% of people mm-hmm. are insane supportive. I have been shocked by how incredibly supportive people are of my work, of what I'm doing. And most importantly, the incredibly satisfying feeling of me having them support me as a creator, not just based on the way I look or the way I sound or what have you. I'm just excited about me as a creator. And that is the most amazing feeling in the world. Mm-hmm. Having said that, um, I do remember th- this one particular instance really just boggled my mind. I had a, I had a gentleman come up to me and he was with two kids. Um, they were both under 10. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so, you know, I was sitting at the table and, I, and I'm a self-identified Muslim. I wear a headscarf. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he kind of... Um, <laughs> he, I, I'm not going to phrase this correctly, but he sort of applauded me for um, escaping my family. Wow, and um, and, uh, and and doing this thing which would certainly have me, I guess, disowned or whatever. <laughs> so he had created this whole narrative. This whole his, narrative. This of whole narrative. Because you uh, love comics so much. I love comics so much. <laughs> oh my and uh, I was just like so shocked, and I my initial reaction was a little bit of anger, but you know, I mean, I see the two little youngsters there, and yeah. I'm not. I I don't really want to want to say anything, but I I kind of implied strongly that I have a very loving and supportive family who, while not always understanding how the comic industry works, always support me. Um, And so I I do get a lot of those instances of like, you're so brave, (laughs) Um, which is always really embarrassing and awful. Yeah. Um, But you know, it's, it's, uh, but that's again, like one in in a million. Well, that's, that's a relief. I'm actually surprised you would even deal with that in, in person so much because I would assume that people would be too like timid to, to say something so ridiculous. 
I would have figured the internet would be your enemy in that case. No, no, I, I get, you know, and, and there's a photo of me on my website, so people know, yeah. you know, who they're talking to when they when they contact me through my website. Yeah. But uh, no, it's, it's all in person. Uh, I uh-huh. guess people... You know, and you know, bless some of them. I think they think they're being nice. Yeah. So, you know, I get is what it it's is. It's exactly. It's this. It's like your your grandma kind of yeah. thing where it's like Folks they don't think racism. they're being. Yeah, exactly. Um. They don't even realize how <laughs> offensive they're being. Yeah. But that's that's unfortunate. Oh, and it, I'm it's assuming really you've never actually encountered Frank Miller at any convention because otherwise that probably would have been your worst nightmare. No, I can't say I ever have. <laughs> um, yeah, in truth, actually, you. Do sometimes get even funnier comments from like other creators. Really, yeah, yeah. Um, but 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 distinctly the word funnier, which is yeah. like a little unusual. But you can kind of understand they're not used to seeing my face yeah. in their industry. Well, I mean, comic creators can often be a bit of an odd bunch. Yes, I mean, like it's it's really a strange kind of collection of people. Some people are. I don't know, like more t- skewed more towards normal, and then some people are just way off the spectrum, kind of strange. But generally, I'd say most comic creators that I've encountered are really, really good, amazing, night, really super sweet people. Honestly, they are, and amazing people. And I, I know we were talking before we started recording about uh, how I was considering doing a um, a online sort of inking YouTube tutorial. That's right. And one of the reasons I wanted to do that is because. You know, I'm a self-taught creator. I feel like I've been given so much mm-hmm. via the internet, via creators talking about their process. Like everything I learned, I've learned from just things I've observed online or from other creators. And uh, for again, every you know one instance of having an unfortunate encounter with someone, there's another million creators who are just excited to see you joining the industry and really want to help and really want to just reach out to you um i remember i was at uh, san jose uh, san jose's big wow last year um, which was an amazing convention mostly like artistically focused mm-hmm. and um i was really really excited to meet eduardo riso of like 100 bullets, 100 bullets yeah of course and uh i was just so blown away by his work and his um he has he, such a beautiful style it's he's just yeah. a wonder really um and uh, i was nervous about approaching him um but uh you know even though uh, there was a teeny bit of a language barrier there. He's just the sweetest person in the world, and and it just gave me so much encouragement. I've even had creators who I may who are a little more golden age or a little more silver age who I may have never heard of who have approached me on their own to give encouragement. Um, so there's so there's so you're right. Like our community does have so many wonderful people in it. Yeah, I mean it's uh, that's actually kind of the reason why I really became so enamored with it, especially. Coming to Toronto, um, and like I, I kind of realized a couple of years ago that I really wanted to get into making comics, and and like it was something I really wanted to learn more about, which is how I met you know your studio mate Meg, because I basically went to Ty Templeton's boot camp, mm-hmm. but it was funny through that I kind of gradually sort of learn more and by attending conventions and stuff I really got to learn more about sort of the community that's just here in, in Toronto of, of creators and like just the fact that they are like everyone was so welcoming and just really warm really nice people it, it was like it really enamored me and I was like like whether I create comics or not I just want to be around this world because there's just so many great people in it you yeah. know it's uh, it's so true like I, I know exactly what you're saying my first convention was uh, out in, in Winnipeg um, and I I don't know this would have been like seven or eight years ago or something it was mm-hmm. quite a while ago now and it was my very first experience at a table as well so the same thing um, and ever since then I've been I mean I, I know a lot of comic creators complain about the convention scene they complain about visitors and attitudes and egos and all this stuff but honestly I have always loved it I get excited every time there's going to be one I'm always stoked to meet people and talk about the work and, and even just the really the great excitement of knowing that these are another another bunch of people who are really well read yeah. and will give you recommendations on things to check out absolutely um, yeah so I know exactly what you mean I just uh, I love the community and I always want to be a part of it because um, there's just so much fun stuff going on. Yeah, no, it's very true. And did you find when you worked in, when you were in Montreal, you mm-hmm. kind of had, you were sharing a studio with a lot of pretty notable people within the comic industry. I mean, Yannick Paquette is mm-hmm. one of those people that jumps out to me because, I mean, he's a force in terms of, like, the stuff he's done in DC Comics and everything. And 
I mean, was that something where you kind of found there was a community there as well? Or how do you find that even relates to, say, here in Toronto? I mean, was it a very different kind of scene of illustrators? Or um, I think so, yeah, because, like, with uh, with Montreal and Quebec, you have more of the Bede scene, um, which has a little bit of a different mood to it. Bon dessiné, I should say. Okay. Uh, BD uh, stands for bon dessiné, which is, I, I mean, they're comics, of course, but they mm-hmm. do have a little bit of a different culture and a little bit of a different mood to them. Um, and they kind of stretch out to places like France and Belgium as well, okay. um, who have like their own very robust BD communities. Yeah. Um, and so. Uh, with with the with the Jensen ladies, I was sharing my last studio with in Montreal. Um, they're just you know a really incredible, talented bunch, and a lot of independent creators like myself. And um, Yannick, of course, is like such a powerhouse, and his work is just always so incredibly impressive. His stuff on um, his Wonder Woman stuff that's kind of being sneak previewed around right now is so gorgeous. I haven't even seen that. Yet. Oh man, it's it's fantastic. Um, personally speaking, I would love to. Um, one of my favorite activities was coming into the studio and picking his brain um, oh, yeah. on any number of topics. So uh, I have to thank him for a lot of uh, a lot of guidance as well. But um, yeah, no, it, it when I came here, it was a very different environment. Um, again, not much of not as much of the sort of like bon dessiné crowd a little bit of a different mood and then Toronto also had some very established shows like TCAF and uh, the community just had a different vibe not in any ways good or bad or anything like that just a very different culture Um, a lot of young people I think was a big big change for me oh yeah Um, or maybe that's just uh, my perspective is skewed because I was the youngest in my old studio and I'm the oldest in my Current, current studio, studio or the current studio I just recently retired from yeah um, temporarily 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 that I'm on we'll leave, yeah. that I'm on leave from um, yeah. but uh, yeah so that was kind of um, that was a kind of a change like seeing a very yeah. different perspective well I think I think in Toronto there definitely I think there's a, a real burgeoning sort of younger generation of, of artists and illustrators that are and writers too that are mm-hmm. coming up um but there's still a there there still exists like an older sort of like an older guard or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's kind of funny to see because I mean you have, I mean you have older guys like uh, some someone like Ty Templeton and there are, there are others whose kind of names elude me offhand that I you know could li- rhyme off. But then you have sort of that second tier of the guys that are really in the the prime right now. I mean mm-hmm. guys like Ramon Perez and Francis Manuel. A lot of the raid crew. Exactly. Yeah. I mean those they there's definitely those sorts of people. Um, and then there's other people that are sort of on the like either on the cusp or, or like sort of the younger generation. I mean people like I mean my friend Adam Gorham who's he's Mississauga but I mean he's <laughs> I mean but like uh, and and Michael Walsh who's again he's I kind of consider him someone that's within the Toronto scene even though he's operating out of Hamilton right but because like I think I mean Toronto's such a catch-all it, it's, it is and uh, you know because that sort of general area of this the central Ontario area is so broad and like Toronto is that convergence point mm-hmm. and I don't know if Montreal was like that for Quebec at all where like you know surrounding areas I mean like Montreal is definitely an epicenter of, of Quebec mm-hmm. there's also I guess Quebec City but it's there's places Illinois. like you know like Trois-Rivières as well and stuff um, you know because I'm, I was still very new to the like Quebecois culture I couldn't really speak to how much of a catch-all Montreal was mm-hmm. um, like I said I was actually just very surprised by how much of a um, older uh, cohort there was in the in the comic industry. Older is not the correct word. I should say more like a more mature industry. Yeah. Whereas here, you don't meet a lot of creators who are more within, like for example, like Ty's cohort. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it, but it was very different and very interesting, and and it's just kind of seeing how different Montreal can be from Toronto makes you wonder, like. You know, if you can get out there and break into like the Calgary scene or the Vancouver scene, what are you going to run into? Yeah. Um, and I really, I would really love to do actually Calgary Con sometime. I've um, heard it's an excellent convention. That's I haven't I've gone heard. myself, but everyone I know that's gone has had a really great experience. So yeah. it definitely seems like one that's like worth worth checking out. And uh, Ottawa's Comic Con is really growing too. I, yeah, it's, it's by the same guys who do the Montreal Con. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Which I, I mean, again, I've I've never been to either. Sad to say, but I've heard that they're excellent conventions. Yeah, really been well to MCC. Oh, you should no. really go. I, I actually, I'm hoping I can get out this year. I, it every year it falls on like you know school kind of period, right? It's in September, right. so it's always tough to sort of manage it. In the past couple of years, I've always been in school somewhere. 
Um, you know, I, I have nothing but good things to say about it. It's a great con. Yeah. Well, it's it's definitely one I'll, I'll hope to check out. I mean, I know I'll be doing Fan Expo because <laughs> it's the one you do, but it's like you cringe because it's huge, but it's just, you know, it's kind of, it, there are ups and downs to that convention, you know? Yeah. Um, I have a, like, I mean, I've been doing the con circuit for a long time now, mm-hmm. and I always have people who are just getting into it ask me on occasion, like, um, the bigger the better, right? And it's yeah. actually not... Really yeah. true for for uh, if, uh, behind the table, yeah. I, I, I assume it depends on the type of work you do. It's like finding your right audience, and Fan Expo is one of those ones where you're going to get pretty much everyone who's not a comic reader or yeah. like not into sort of the non-mainstream comics that like. But it's uh, it's also the exhaustion of Fan Expo. There's so point. many tables and so much in Artist Alley and, and so much great stuff. Um, people get literally just overwhelmed. Like there's only so much content you can take in in one day and still um, process. Yeah, that. and, and so, really still sort of keep your head in it, right? Yeah. So I mean, I, that's what I would say for anyone who's wanting to get into this sort of scene and, and work at a table and and sell what their wares or art or what have you, like. Fan Expo is not always the best place to start. It's better to start with the smaller cons where you have the visibility because it doesn't matter how many hundreds of thousands of people they bring in. Hundreds of thousands of people can't get around that much. And and the big point, too, is that you only have so much money that, yeah. like, that you can spend like as a, as a, con, a convention goer, attendee yeah. or goer, yeah. And, you know... You'd think, it's not like, you know, just because there are all these people with, you know, and they've got so much to spend, it's not like they're going to all spend it in different places. There's going to be a few attractions that, you know, get a lot of people's money and then a lot that don't, right? Because right? it's just tough to get, you know, get their attention. So, I mean, it's it's a good point. Um, and I mean, with someone like yourself, I mean, this is a good segue to talk about your, what you're actually selling at these conventions, <laughs> yeah. which is uh, your book, mm-hmm. which is uh, 1001. Right? Yeah. Um, which is a really cool book, but not necessarily something for the mainstream comic reader. Um, yeah, I mean, it could be. I think it really depends on what you're looking for with your book. Mm-hmm. With my creation, uh, 1001, which is based on 1001 Arabian Nights, uh, it's basically about a, a young woman who ends up in an absolutely horrible situation. She's kidnapped by King, who marries a woman every morning, kills her every night, and the only way she finds to keep herself alive while trapped with this madman is to tell him a story every day, but leave it on a cliffhanger to keep herself alive. And uh, some of the most famous stories from 1001 Arabian Nights are things like, you know, Sinbad, Alibaba, Aladdin. Mm-hmm. These are the things that people have heard of, but this is the original story they come from. Oh. So with my book, um, I, I've never had a great taste for material that's very, like, one note in the sense of, like, strictly action, strictly adventure, strictly mm-hmm. this, strictly that. For me, I like a very um, broad palette. In, in what I'm working on. So I like to have a little bit of humor, a little bit of horror, a little bit of drama um, in my story and to try to make it kind of cover, I don't want to say the gamut of human emotions, that sounds a little pretentious, but um, I do want it to at least, I want to have something for everyone. And I would hope that people would kind of stray towards my comment and give it a try and actually find that they like it. Well, I mean, you, you say that, you know, that sounds pretentious, but I, I would actually argue that that's, a reality of good storytelling. You, you really do hit on, you know, the the full gamut of human emotion because that's what, you know, that's what a good story should have. It's mm-hmm. gonna it's gonna have something of everything because that's what sort of grounds it in reality. If it's all one thing, then that doesn't feel very real, you know. Yeah. Like no one's life is just a romance, yeah. you know, or pure comedy. Um, so, I mean, I think that's that's indicates to me, I mean, that's like, you're trying to tell a good story and that's important. And I mean, it's nice that you have something that's a good base to go off of because obviously the the stories are there. Um, Are you telling that, are you telling the story purely from the the perspective of, um, forgive me if I mispronounce the name, it's uh, Scheherazade? Scheherazade or Scheherazade, yes, absolutely. Um, Are you telling it purely from her perspective or are you going to be telling stories from like Aladdin and Sinbad as well or... Well, so the story is primarily about her experience in this in this kind of horrible situation, although she will be telling some stories as well. Um, a lot of it is exploring her as a very creative person in a time that wasn't necessarily very broad-minded for yeah. creative women. Um, so th- there is that part of it, but the story actually does have multiple protagonists. It also follows the life of her sister, who has recently you know, had her elder sister Sherazad kidnapped, has no idea where she's gone, and um, her life trying to figure out what to do 
now that this has happened and how to how to find out what happened. And it's a little that is a little bit of a detective buddy comedy section of my story, which uh, is you'll start to see hints of in issue three. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, it it does follow multiple protagonists, and I've tried to create a bit of a rich palette with the characters because the the one thing I'd like people to take away from the book is that um, there's no white knights and black knights in my story. It's um, a lot of people making the best decisions they can, yeah. uh, not always with the best intentions. Well, I mean, and that's that's really, again, like that's what you would want to do in a story, right? Because the it's basing characters from a sense of reality, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it sounds to me like you're actually taking... A, a real creative flight from the actual, I guess, the basis, which is just the... Yeah. So, I mean, is it... The, the basis for thousand, 1001 Year Story, is it... It sounds almost more like something like um, Kill Shakespeare, where it's, take, it's taking your own creative take off of this existing material that, you know, it's it's almost more like a, a baseline for. I mean, like, the story itself is entirely yours. Am I, Absolutely. Oh, okay. um, it's definitely really just inspired by 1001 rather than like you know um, it's not a illustrated version or exactly whatever. Like it's yeah it's like definitely a not a blow-by-blow blow version yeah. of 1001 it's oh 1001 Arabian Nights this is definitely like my own interpretation and my own direction with the story um, you can see that right from issue one it's really not the same story um, that isn't to say that there aren't touchstones for those who have read the original mm-hmm. but um, one of the reasons when I when I came up across this idea that I really want to try to create my own book and my own narrative Um, One of the reasons I wanted to explore this story was because I thought it was just incredibly fascinating that here you have this female protagonist, and and some people say the 1001 Arabian Nights can be as old as like 700, 800, 900 AD. Mm -hmm. Um, No one knows who wrote it. And yet it's about a woman who's celebrated not for her beauty or her nobility or her purity, but she's celebrated for her cunning and, um, and, and her charm and her wit. And that's just not something you really see in a lot of ancient narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's very true. And I thought, you know, this is something that is completely fallen off the radar um, with like succeeding generations. Um, in my time, I think a lot pe- more people knew what 1001 Arabian Nights are, but now that I've actually written the story, I find that 95% of the people who approach me at conventions have don't know what it is they may have heard of it mm-hmm. or they know about it in that sense but they don't know what it is and i thought this is a great chance for me to bring you know bring back attention to something that was really actually a, a huge accomplishment for human civilization this yeah like phenomenal ancient story that that spanned like countries and worlds um so yeah that's i guess that's my goal in in, in going in that direction yeah sort of refocusing it to be about that female character that, that is, like you said, so unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, was there anything about that, like, I mean, is that a story that you have loved for a long time, or is this something that you kind of realized that you kind of had an aha moment with, you know? Um, I had, I mean, I had always heard of it. I was a young kid when I saw my uncle's copy of the book. Um, so I had always known about it. I, I, around the same time that I was a kid, Aladdin came out which was like, you know, started to kind of wet my imagination in that direction. Um, of like, I loved hey, that movie as a kid. That, I oh, think me I, too. That came out at like the perfect age for me as a kid, because mm-hmm. I was probably like maybe eight or nine, and it just like, that was one of the most memorable Disney it, movies It was so me. vivacious. It was. Compared to like everything else that had come out at that, by that point. And it was, it was very tongue-in-cheek and just a very different world, and so... Um, yeah, no, like, I mean, it, it, everything started brewing, I guess, at that age. But in truth, um, you know, it was more of an aha moment once it finally kind of came to fruition a little while ago, the story. Um, because I I knew I wanted to work with characters that people have in some regard heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really want to start a story from complete scratch this first time around. Um, I think it's a tough sell. I mean, from a purely, like, sort of strategic standpoint, I I know a lot of creators that have done similar things. Mm -hmm. I mean, your studio mate, Meg, Mm -hmm. doing that with Beauty and the Beast as well. Uh, I mean, the the guys that do Kill Shakespeare, uh, Anthony and Connor and and Andy, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, you take something and, and there's that, what we were talking about before, brand recognition, that sense of understanding what this is. I think it's a smart move as a as an like sort of an early creator because it really is tough to sell someone on a book that 
you know, you have to bring them into your world and really, like, and that takes time. It's not something that you can just do overnight. And, and even trust to a certain extent. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think there's somebody who might look at my book and say, hey, I like really pretty dresses from the ancient world. Like, maybe I'll read it. But, um, yeah, it, 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 that, that falls into that brand recognition that you talked about. If it was a completely from scratch story this time around, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, it's harder to get people to trust in me and my work. And, and in truth, like, I think the major thing that really pulled me in this direction was that um, with with 1,000... Well, I mean, this this harkens back to the fact that I was, I'm was i an artist before I'm a writer, although mm-hmm. I take the writing very seriously. Um, as an artist, the hardest thing to do is when you get a commission and people tell you to do whatever you want, yeah. to draw whatever you want. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes Some people love that, yeah. but for me, I like a little bit of structure. Because I feel like just that slight structure or slight backbone Mm -hmm. lets my world just expand and explode and and lets me do work that I find more impressive than if I just completely went from scratch. And maybe that's a weakness in me, I can't speak to that, but um, for the writing that worked too, I was like, if I completely, oh hey look, my phone's going off in a really (laughs) bad way, Um, (laughs) or is that your phone? Yeah. Or is it a phone? Maybe it was a sound I intentionally put in after the fact to make people wonder. Yeah, no, that is, uh, I love these sound edits that you do where you I know, it's, in... it's wacky. Yeah, let's hope that doesn't happen again, <laughs> but, you know, we'll Let's just... hope I don't get too creative with these sounds. Yeah, <laughs> just in case I'll put my phone that was on silent, on silent again. Exactly. Um... <laughs> so I don't get crazy with the sound effects. Yeah, no, of course, we, we, we don't want you getting yeah. too creative here. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> but again, back to talking about your creative creativity. I think it makes sense for. I mean, everyone's different as far as like their creative process, and some people do need more structure. Um, and I think from a storytelling perspective, that's important because, you know, I think uh, story is one of the hardest things to tell, like to get people invested in, um, from from a purely creative standpoint and a lot of a lot of your ability to sort of keep the reader interested comes from a good understanding of the structure right and like when when events should be taking place and the pacing and, and all of those those elements that I think are aided by someone who requires structure from a creative standpoint so yeah. um, I'm curious though because I mean we were talking about your artistic sort of process and you you said you're mostly self-taught uh which is astounding because your art is beautiful thank you i i am completely dumbfounded to think that you didn't did you not go to any art school no i didn't do any art education that's unreal to me because you you know your work is gorgeous uh and i know i'm not alone in saying that so uh that's that's incredibly impressive but from a writing perspective i'm curious um so how did you go about sort of crafting the story and like sort of did you look like did you sort of go anywhere to learn about sort of storytelling i've done a lot of reading which is really all i've had all that I can touch upon yeah. is just well, doing a lot of reading. One book I found really useful, really useful, not everybody cares for it, but I really liked it, was uh, Robert McKee's story, yeah, so. which uh, teaches screenwriting and whatnot, and that was a sure. huge help to me, and uh, just just doing a lot of that kind of uh, reading on what makes a good story, how does a good story work, mm-hmm. and then also I'm a bit of an obsessive novel reader, yeah. um, so <laughs> I always complain to my husband, I'm, I, I like the urban fantasy genre. Um, it's just a complete guilty pleasure, not gonna lie. I, I'm an absolute I, escapist reader. Is it bad that I don't really know what that means as a genre? Oh, like, fair enough. Urban yeah. fantasy. Urban fantasy is like, um, basically, it's like vampires and werewolves in the modern world. Oh, it's okay. extremely embarrassing for me to admit. Um, I did had, I didn't read Twilight though, so I'm not that right. far gone. <laughs> um, but, but you know what? I, I do, I'm an escapist reader, okay. for sure. I'm definitely not one of those people who's sitting down with like, I don't know, like modern econ- economics in the Western world. Like I am an escapist reader, and um, one thing that happens when you're an escapist reader is you read a lot of really bad material, like oh, really I'm bad. I'm sure, yeah. Um, I'm always shocked. Like sometimes, I, I just recently started a book, I, and I won't embarrass the writer by saying who they are. But um, I recently started reading a book, and uh, telegraphing is when like characters just say what they're doing all yeah. the time, kind sort of. of. Oh, okay, yeah, um, like, that, that, like, just talking about their exposition. Or, yeah, like, oh. That was something that used to be rampant in comics, and it used to be terrible. Yeah, yeah. and, uh, and I remember I was reading page after page after page of this person talking about their entire work history with a detective agency. Oh, boy. Um, and I was like, this is, 
this book is going to suck. Um, so I think I've learned a lot of lessons the hard way in terms of reading how bad it is yeah. when, you, when you see it in a book. So you become very self-conscious with your own writing. You're like, oh God, I cannot have Sherazad start like talking about talking why about what she's doing yeah, yeah or like why her why her why her decisions are, are yeah. this way um there's one piece of advice that i was given when i first started comics which was um if it doesn't read without words it's a weak story mm-hmm. you know what i mean it, it needs to be able to work without any dialogue at all i think as like as an illustrator that's always something to, to keep in mind but yeah. as a storyteller too as a writer mm-hmm. you have to like i think that's a good point that you know, the dialogue is, it's tertiary. It's its really just to sort of make it more robust. Yes. And, yeah, you're, I think you're absolutely right. When you're talking, when you're, you know, planning out those panels, that has to read on its own. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, that's the approach that you take. Yeah, that, that, for me, that's the approach that I take. I'll usually, um, I have my whole story written, so to speak, um, in the broadest sense of the terms. I haven't nailed down every detail because I like it to stay a little organic. But when it comes to an issue-to-issue breakdown, usually what I'll do is I'll write the issue out in terms of the dialogue. Okay. But I will draw the panels out without the dialogue. I know that sounds a little unusual, but I don't want the panels and their energy to be hindered by what I wrote. Um, I just need the barest idea that, okay, Dunyazade is running down the street, Sherazad is reaching up to grab this thing, you know, like, I, as long as I have a general concept of what I want to accomplish, I'll, I'll, be, I'll put on the artist hat at that point, and I will just be the artist, and then I marry the two, okay. um, in a way that I feel, I, some people might call that a little silly, but, um... I think, I think it's cartooning in like which you're doing where you're doing both the art and the writing mm-hmm. is a particularly, it's a unique experience to each person. Mm-hmm. And I know when I was talking to Jason Liu, who just did Pitiful Human Lizard, which yeah, he wrote so and drew himself, it was excellent. I, I can't rave about that book enough. Um, but his process was similar in the, the sense that he, he kind of flip-flops between the, the writing and the um, illustration in terms of like what he, whether he wants to be planning out the plan. It's, there's no real set structure to the way he does it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, it's, it's different for everyone. So I wouldn't say there is a silly way. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and I hope that's true because I definitely like, uh, I do that weird back and forth. And then I thought the final marriage is, is I'll go into the, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll color the work, I'll, I'll ink the work, I'll color the work, finish it. And then once I get down to the lettering, that's when I remarry my dialogue and and adjust it for you know I've given it enough time now to kind of like cure so to speak. Right. And when I when I bring it back into the work now, I'm looking at it in a fresh light and I'm and I'm fixing it up and making it a little bit more tight and a little bit more um, exciting. So that's that's usually how I put my issues together. Um, and I am curious actually in oh, that um, when when you were talking about that because you you were saying you kind of do the you plan the dialogue first all the writing mm-hmm. or like sort of the what they're gonna say. Do you ever find that when you've kind of in that final marriage when you've put together all the panels and everything, do you ever have a oh crap moments where you're like this dialogue's really not gonna fit here or like I, so? Oh my gosh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. How do you deal with There's, that? <laughs> badly. That's uh, no, I definitely have those moments where I'm uh, absolutely just painting myself into a corner and I'm like, wow, really thought that through. This is super professional. Um, uh, Which I, I think people do. Like, I, I'm sure it happens more than you would think. So I hope so. I think it's, um, well, it's just, again, like, unless you're planning everything, like, you either are planning everything from one perspective first or the other, uh, and then dealing with it after the fact, or you're doing it like like you're saying, kind of juggling both. In which case, you're going to have those problems. But from your perspective, I think that you're dealing with you're you're allowing yourself to create a stronger story because you're giving it better. You know, you're you're giving more time and attention to the art, and you're you're giving both equal kind of time yeah. versus putting one thing as a primary and a secondary. Exactly, and I and I think one thing that's also a little challenging is while there are a lot of like um, full creators in the sense of people who pencil and, and color and, and do all the writing as well, while there are more and more of us day by day, there aren't actually so many. I mean, ultimately, comics was uh, more of an assembly line kind of world, and that's it's changing all the time. Mm-hmm. But it means that there isn't a lot of other experiences to draw upon all the time to be able to 
read someone saying like, okay, this is how I put together the entire story. For me, I didn't even, in truth, know that it was a possibility until I got into manga. Really? Yeah, um, I got into manga in a really bad way. As uh, after 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 exploring comics, yeah. I was like, oh my god, manga, um, which I absolutely fell in love with, and I'm still a huge, embarrassingly big manga fan. And I was like, oh my god, there are people who really do everything. Um, and I don't think, in truth, I would have ever become an illustrator of. Um, in the way that I am, which is I color, I ink, I, I pencil. Um, I would have never become an illustrator if it weren't for knowing that people are doing it in Japan. Really? Because, yeah, I never... When I read comics, I, I always saw so many names. I always thought that you can only do the one. It was right. only seeing what mangaka were doing that I was like, you can do more. Um, that's so interesting, because I guess that's that's a good point. I, I had almost a, a reverse effect when I was, like growing up and, and seeing these comics and seeing all these different names because I, I actually saw all the other jobs as being so inaccessible mm-hmm. it's like the artists and the the, the uh, writer those ones I understood I could wrap my head around that mm-hmm. but I was like inker that must be such a hard job to get like how do you become an inker when it's like inker's like the secondary job that another artist gets like with very few exceptions where there were those you know master inkers and mm-hmm. Or letterers and stuff like that. But yeah, it's like, like it's it, so many people's secondary choice. I feel like it's becoming a lost art, though, to tell you the truth. Like I'm Certainly a very, letter. I'm an extremely diligent, like uh, physical inker. Uh, I I brush, I nib, I I ink everything physically. I never ink on the computer, mostly because I spend too much time in front of the computer to begin with. Uh, um, so I'm a religious physical inker. But uh, I don't know. I kind of feel like it's a lost art. I see more and more and more digital inking now. I think it's it's a dying art. I don't know a if di- it's lost yet. Yes, yeah. that's the correct way of phrasing it. It's a dying art, um, which is really too bad because there's a lot you can do with Photoshop brushes and, mm-hmm. and whatnot, but you can always, I don't know, maybe I'm just, I don't know, maybe I'm old fashioned, but like, I, I feel like there is more soul in physical inking. I don't know. I think it's one of those things where you definitely have kind of different camps on it. Um, the, the most compelling argument I've heard from artists that have switched to digital inking mm-hmm. is the time factor, which yes. I can completely appreciate. I mean, if you can save yourself a half a day's work and still get the same amount of pay for it, why not? Mm-hmm. But then the, the flip side of the argument becomes the uh, sort of the, the resale marketability of original. Yes. Right? You know, I mean, there's the ability to sell your original art, which doesn't exist if you're doing it digitally. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, you know, there's pros and cons. There is. But um, I I definitely think that, I don't think it's something that's going to go away entirely. I just think that it's, different people are going to have different preferences. Because I think that traditional is just, I think people just like working on a substrate and really working with original, like real materials. Yeah. And I don't think that's going away. I hope not. And I, and I think the reason I find it disappointing that I guess there is a bit of a decline, and I understand where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. I mean, if your bread and butter is getting your stuff done quickly, I mean, the computer's where it's yeah. got to be. And I and I digitally color myself. But um, with the inking, I just remember a, a colleague of mine um, who had showed me my first original pages. Um, by He was a collector and uh, just collected original pages from all over the place. Phenomenal works um, that I never would have had the opportunity to see in any other facet of my life. And uh, I would meet with him over coffee and we would, he would just take out whatever his latest purchase was. Oh, yeah. And I would get to hold it in my hand, these, these works by, by behemoths of our industry. Yeah. And to see the physical inking and the quality and the creativity and the daring that would go into it, um, I mean, you can't not fall in love with it. Yeah, it's, um, and that's the thing is you really see a person's like the real their soul like or at the very least their their approach their technique on an original page. You know, I don't think you see it quite the same way on a digital on a piece of digital work because there's so many kind of masks and ways to hide it and sort of ways to give it that polish that you don't really you don't see those impurities that you see on a original page yeah and i remember when i went to it was like the it was the launch for the flash number one mm-hmm. and francis manipul had a, like a, a gallery showing and he had all of these original pages there and it blew me away like i i didn't even realize that he like a fun fact about his work is that before he goes and colors it he works with washes like watercolor washes mm-hmm. to um sort of get it all get all of his tones and everything and often in like sort of monochrome like there'll be like 
black and white, but there'll also be like one color in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just really interesting. And rich. It, yeah, and it's it's beautiful work, and you kind of see all that texture, and you can see the way it sort of get a glimpse of the sense of how he attacked it and, and approached it and everything. It's just it's. Yeah, there's something that's lost in the digital way. Yeah, and, and and again, that's not to put any sort of judgment whatsoever on those who are doing it digitally. No. More that like, as a fan, like not yeah. speaking as an artist, as a fan, yeah. I love seeing the original work. I agree, and I think it'd be like when all is said and done, I think the digital work, even from a purely digital work standpoint, mm-hmm. is beautiful. I like. I think there's so much digital art that's getting made right now that's like people are really starting to to, well, not even starting, but they've really come to fully understand the form mm-hmm. and make it its own art form but uh, absolutely I mean I'm, I'm in the same camp as you that I, I love original comic art and I personally like for my my very limited illustration work I know I like to work on like a physical surface and work with ink it's very satisfying yeah it is it just feels really nice it does but uh, yeah that just about rounds it out so um, I guess we'll we'll end on that note which is sure. uh, our, our purest views on how comic books <laughs> should be made our old fashioned views yeah that's our last that's our ending note but um, I do want to ask I mean you were talking about issue three mm-hmm. um, is there any sort of timeline timeline on when that's going to be released absolutely. so people know absolutely um I'm almost done with issue three, so it'll be out this summer, definitely. Um, although, at the same time, I, I'm expecting as well. So, that's, that's true. So there um, may be a setback there. There may be a slight setback in the middle. So um, depending on when my next little project decides to join me, um, <laughs> we'll see uh, whether uh, the comic comes out before or after the birth. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. So well, that'll be awesome. determined by that. I know from reading the first two issues, I'm super excited for the new book. Oh, thank you. And I can't wait to read it. And uh, yeah, anyone listening to this should absolutely check it out. Um, is like is there sort of contact Abs- uh, for- absolutely um, you can actually read my comic completely for free online um, you just need to search me Sonia Anwar S-A-N as in Nancy Y-A A-N as in Nancy W-A-R and you can go to my website artbysonia.com and you can read it free there and yeah just feel free to hook up with me anywhere and if you want to read more add me to Twitter or Tumblr and you'll get the alert when the third issue comes out there you go alright that was really fun <laughs> now we can go back to eating cookies alright cookies <laughs> All right, so that was my conversation with Sonia. That was a really great interview for me. I had so much fun doing it. Um, she's just a fantastic person, and if you haven't checked her her workout yet by now, uh, absolutely check out her stuff because it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, so coming up, we have lots of other great podcasts uh, that I'm working on right now. Um, we're still a little bit inconsistent on the release times, and I really have to apologize for that. It's uh, It's been hectic so far. Um, we've got the, the website in the pipeline. We're super close technically to being ready to go. Now it's just a matter of fleshing out the content. Um, but look forward to a, near, a launch in the near future, probably in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so I really hope you enjoy the podcast. We've got uh, more great stuff in the pipeline, and uh, be sure to check it out. Also, before you go, I do want to provide just a sort of give a quick shout out. Uh, there is a Kickstarter campaign that a good friend of mine, Ellie Weinstein, is uh, putting on for a web series uh, called Dealing with Grandma. Uh, it's a really cool concept about uh, a drug dealing grandma that moves in with her uh, her grandson. Um, it's really funny. We've already shot sort of a proof of concept sort of pilot, uh, and now he's raising money to uh, to create a three part mini series. Um, I am actually involved in the project, so I'll throw that out there right now. Um, but check out the the Kickstarter for it um, and give it a look. And if you if you do believe in the project as much as I do, um, please support it because uh, we'd really love to make it happen. And I really think it'll be something great uh, if we can get it funded. All right, so uh, that's me done begging for now. Um, but I really hope that you guys will uh, check it out, and I hope you enjoy the podcast and look forward to more great stuff to come on Geekion.